Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Brianna Reese, and I'm the student director of the Roundtables here at Philadelphia University. This afternoon, we will be speaking of responding to Trump, and our host today is Professor Josh Smicker. And I will turn it over to Josh. Uh, I'm Professor Smicker. I'm a professor in the communication program, and also currently the director of the program. I'm Colin Murphy. I'm a second year communications major. My name is Aaron Gerstein. I'm a fifth-year architecture student. Uh, Tom Fung, uh, I was an adjunct in Philly U. Evan Lane, director of the Office Spectre Center. Um, Chloe, I'm first-year Law and Society major. Um, Kevin, I'm a uh, fourth-year Law and Society major. John Devote, I'm in the Liberal Arts Department. Joel Adler, I'm on the adjunct faculty with the Doctorate of Strategic Leadership. Great, thank you all so much for coming. Uh, yeah, so what I would like to do is basically use this as an open discussion, sort of around how we can effectively respond to Trump from a variety of different angles. Uh, either either you agree with him or disagree with him, and also talk a little bit about the meaning of Trump's victory, and also introduce us more generally to a series of talks that are going to be going on throughout the semester. What is the official name of the Trump talks? Yeah. I think it's called Trump Talks. Okay. And they tend to focus on uh, connecting the election and the presidency with specific issues. Raji, for example, already presented on uh, Trump and immigration. So looking at Trump from a not from a general perspective, so what we're doing today, but more from a specific issue perspective. And I envision us having this discussion really sort of broken up into four parts. Uh, part one, I would like to talk about how did this happen? How, I mean, pretty much. Almost no one predicted Trump's victory, and now there's like a veritable cottage industry of works that are now all trying to explain what happened. Trump won because of X. So maybe we could talk a little bit about some reasons, either reasons that you've seen, reasons that you think are behind it, and try to understand where this came out uh, to begin with. Uh, secondly, we'll talk a little bit about the issues that it raised. Um, third, concerns that you may have, things that either you are worried about or you are supportive of Trump, things that you are excited about. And then that will lead us to the fourth part, which is really what the talk, you know, what the roundtable is called, which is based on all those other things, how do we respond to Trump? How do we resist? How do we try to change what they're doing? Or how do you encourage him if that's something that you think should be happening? And let's start with maybe just how did Trump get elected? What are some of the key reasons behind this election? The way I see it, um, I see it from kind of two different perspectives. Um, one is the sort of short-term conditions that led to the immediate result in this election, uh, and the long-term components of it. So in the short term, I think uh, there were a lot of problems with you know, how many Republican candidates there were, and sort of lack of strength in any one of them that he was able to sort of get his message through and become the, the nominee. Uh, that was, of course, step one that was difficult enough. And then facing Hillary Clinton, I think a couple things worked against her and for him. Number one is I think a lot of people who support Trump believe that this is somebody who, uh, in Trump, that is outside of Washington, um, would affect real change. I think people kind of get a little bit tired of what they see every day and want something new. But I think also a lot of people who would have voted for Hillary Clinton or someone else didn't show up to the polls because they felt that it was an, an inevitable win. There was so much rhetoric going on before the election about Trump is unelectable, there's no chance of him winning, he's so far down in the polls, it seems impossible. 
and I think there was a real factor that actually helped him. Uh, to his own qualities, I think he is a very emotional speaker. I think he really knows how to work a crowd in a way to get them very concerned about issues. If you listen to a lot of his speech, it tends to be very um, negative in terms of the imagery he uses. He talks about, if you remember his inauguration speech, um, graveyards and, and sort of a dystopian vision of what the world would be like without him. American carnage. Yeah, carnage. That was a very memorable speech. It had a very powerful effect. Um, so I think that really roused people to his message. And I think the long term is really uh, comes back to education, how we're familiar with, um, with other cultures in this country, uh, other groups of people, and what we're sort of aware of. Um, I think what this election forced us to do is recognize a lot of different ideas and how diverse we are as a country in terms of the ideas that we experience here in Philadelphia versus somewhere in the Midwest, as an example. So I, I think between those two, I think it all led to a perfect storm of I kind of agree with a lot of the points that you were making, but I think that it's most important to emphasize the significance of the perfect storm. Because it, in my opinion, the Trump election is the result of a perfect confluence of events that, that Hillary Clinton had to not campaign in certain crucial swing states and be overconfident. And there had to be a Bernie Sanders run against her in the primary week in her first. And there had to be a, like, a large, weak Republican um, field of Republican candidates. It just had to be um, all like the Comey League. The Comey statement had to come out a week before the election. It had to be this perfect, just all, if you look at the margins by which he won, if any one or two of those events hadn't occurred, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And I think the Trump's election reveals a lot of things about, a lot of horrifying things about America, like America that we are not necessar necessarily prepared to admit to ourselves, like regarding race and gender and our, our feelings, like our growing feelings of xenophobia in, in a world with terror. But it also doesn't reveal as much as we're willing to project onto it, I guess is the best way to put it. Because I, I, I do think that it was just the perfect set of circumstances for Trump to win. And as like with change, changing demographics and with um, more of my generation come, like coming up voting age, it just seems less and less likely that this will have, a, a, will have significant impacts on the future political wealth of America, besides like anti-intellectualism, I guess. Well, something that came up in both of your comments, which I think yeah. is great, is that it's, look, we, have, we need to think about it in terms of multi-causality. Yeah. There's not just one thing, and there are like so many, if you read Slate or Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, there are all these articles that, you know, Democrats need to really understand the white working class, yes. or Democrats really need to get it together with religion. Or that, so that there's a tendency, I think, to reduce or try to talk about the reason behind this in terms of one primary factor. I think something that was, was great at both of your Points is that there are there are a number of different things that function here all at the same time. And I think what we, this is evident. What I think we left out is the celebrity culture in America. Um, we have perverted values. Um, James Winston, who was speaking at an elementary school today. Yes. Okay. 
What qualifications does Jameis Winston have? The man, if he graduated, he graduated only Quarterback? one. Yes. yes the only graduate between the good graces of the police and security at uh, Florida State. Um, I don't want to get into the various different sexual assaults and things that he did. But today he spoke at an elementary school. Now, what if he speaks about football, fine. If he speaks about fitness, fine. He told today... Uh, the, the boy, boys, you should speak up and be strong. Girls, your role is to be quiet. He said that. Oh, he said that today. So, yes. why is he talking to an elementary school class on anything other than athleticism? He's qualified for nothing. But because he's Jameis Winston, he's a quarterback. We admire him. Well, he gives nothing to be admired. Uh, so we we love celebrities. We watch these idiotic shows. We care about Kim Kardashian, who's nothing more than a fool, and her family's a fool, and we're fools for paying money for her. Okay, but we care because she's a celebrity. So wouldn't it be perfect in, in this country who admires celebrities so much that we have our celebrity president? And he was entertaining. You can put it that, and that's all that mattered. Um, the Affordable Care Act, that sounds boring to me. Uh, immigration, boring. All this boring, boring. But man, put, the, put that orange buffoon in front of a, a, a uh, microphone, and you're going to be entertained for 77 minutes. Who here didn't watch that press conference and not be entertained? It was the best entertainment. That's the best comedy since Duck Soup. I mean, it really <laughs> But unfortunately, I see it as entertainment where other people say, I like him because he entertained me for 77 minutes. So I'm going to vote for him. And Hillary was boring. And I think this question of entertainment raises part of the reason why I wanted to have this talk is I think something that is especially frustrating about the Trump phenomenon is I think a lot of responses play into the Trump phenomenon. That because Trump is so media-centric, because it is all about, again, sort of celebrity image, star image, using social media in new ways, that the Twitter presidency is sort of how people are talking about it, that if our responses are yelling at Trump on Twitter or going to social media or watching news conference and then talking about, even if it's like it's the dumbest or the funniest news conference, you are still talking about Trump. Everything is then sort of going back into that sort of media cycle that I think makes it very difficult to figure out ways in which there are effective responses or, or sites of resistance that don't themselves get reappropriated into the Trump image machine, that don't get sort of articulated to Trump's phenomenon, and then because he even also uses them, right? I think, I think there was a real sort of performance development of protest at the, at the, uh, at the rallies that we could talk about, too. Yeah. My name is Nick, and about like the celebrity thing, what I've like seen is where Hillary Clinton, she actually did have a celebrity role because like there was there was like a couple shows like very like crazy shows that she appeared on as oh my god that's the president that's gonna be the next president so I feel like she did have the celebrity role going for her but the only thing that like affected her was because like for America like. We weren't we weren't ready for a woman president. We had to we had the African American president. So why should we like take the next step? That'll be way too much. Everybody's brain is going to explode if we have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> so we did what we did. Uh, well, the one argument, yeah, you know, I can see the fact about a woman president. A woman can't be president. But the fact is, something like forty percent of women actually voted for Donald Trump. So. You know, the idea that a woman couldn't be president kind of you know, it gets defeated uh, by that. On the, I'm sorry. 
But I, I did want to add one other thing. She's sort of like the anti-celebrity. She's a celebrity you want to bring down. We've had her around for 20 years. She's been saying the same thing for 20 years, you know, back to when Bill Flynn was president. And people are kind of sick of her as a politician and just saying, let's, we don't want her. Yeah, this is Tom. I, uh, you know, looking back the the election of 2016, I couldn't help by thinking about uh, a book by the name of uh, The Tipping Point. All of us read it, you know, Malcolm Gladwell. And, and I believe that 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 might be a whole host of things that add up to that totality that get that get that tipping point. That you know, you could talk about like the technicality of the electoral college votes. That you know, because like I was driving back, visiting uh, my son in Chicago on my way back to Pennsylvania, to New Jersey, and I commented on that I, I I was counted at the, the Trump signs from Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, and I said that uh, the losing side forgot the capital signs, you know. So so then of course I you know we could argue about that identity politics stuff so way yesterday, you know. I mean like now it's like. But I think ultimately what I'm thinking about is just like, is the ultimate question that I think we need to ask ourselves in this country is like, what is the future of work going forward? Because if we could solve that, then fundamentally then, regardless whether you're forgotten few or you're the masses, you, you find yourself a way to the future because people are not comfortable not knowing where to go. And I think that ultimately, you know, I think I think there's something magical about the notion of work. It defines purpose for yourself, it defines hope, it, it brings in other things that enable you to do a lot of things, right? And I think right now is that we're beating our globalization, you know, and that's the thing about it. Two hundred years ago, eighteen eleven, eighteen seventeen, the Luddites Coming in a smash on the machines like Philadelphia University, we uh, attest our centric university, right? When a cotton gin was invented, that was supposed to improve the quality of life. But the people said, Well, I'm losing my job because of the machines, right? Let's crank it out. Fabric, yarn, never take a vacation, right? And now, 200 years later, we're trying to fight digital technology, we're trying to fight all kinds of things. And I think that if we don't peel back all these stuff and talk about how do we define work as we go forward as a, as a nation, as, as, a, you know, as a part of this galaxy, instead of trying to scapegoat and find something, and we're going to be talking about this whole circle conversation for years to come. Uh, this is Colin. Um, I actually agree with you. I think Donald Trump was able to exploit that. Like, the desire for jobs. He was able to go up in front of Michigan and say, "I'm going to um, like take down the like big manufacturers. You're going to get your jobs back. I'm going to just he just promised jobs. Coal industry's coming back, <laughs> right? And even even if it wasn't like smart policy, it was just the fact that people would have a role that like these groups want a job. I'm going to give them a job." Um, he was able to definitely capitalize on that. But I think an important issue with how to understand this like discussion in general is we have to understand the failure of the left. I don't think it's comfortable to do that, but um, I think from any angle you're looking at it, people are 
way too confident in Hillary Clinton, so much so that they were comfortable with uh, giving her a really strong challenge with Bernie Sanders and um, in the primary, and then even in the general, like, oh yeah, I'm not on board with Hillary Clinton, but of course she's going to win, and like it would be insane if we elected Donald Trump. And I think that was a big contribution to why he became president. People were just too confident um, enough to be unsatisfied that this is the best option we have. You know, I think a lot about what you said, and Laura McKenna, but why do people who downtrodden identify with the Republicans? That always struck me as, as odd, because the Republicans are the party who are doing anything for them. And what occurred to me is it's like a fight. If someone's beating up somebody, they say this is a Republican beating up a small, weak person. They're looking to the Democrat, liberal, help me, help me. And they did. They really didn't. So then you say, who do you identify more with? You're the person who is the strong man. The strong man. And how many times have they said, I like him because he's strong? We've heard that. And, and to me, that makes sense in what you said, because the left let them down. Yeah. They really did. They failed. But I think, um, going back to what Trump said, I think that there's a uh, implicit in Donald Trump's message of make America great again, it's about looking towards the past. Because people really are afraid of the future. We have a future right now which is changing so quickly. There's so much uncertainty in our immediate future that it, it's really frightening for people on a very existential level. When Donald Trump says make America great again, he's talking about when he was young, you know, we're talking 50, 40 years ago, what life was like back then. If you listen to his, what he's talking about doing, deregulation, um, not worrying about the environment, getting rid of, of immigrants, it all has to do with what life was like back in a time that he remembers very fondly, and which a lot of people latch onto. I think they, they think, okay, we at least know, it's like the, the devil you know. We know what problems we had back then, but we'd much rather have that than the problems we might have in the future. There's a, a sort of denial that goes into it when we talk about things like climate change. It's really easy to say, well, climate change is a really scary, difficult subject. Let's not worry about it and just you know bring back the coal industry. Things were pretty good back then, according to that narrative, at least. But that sounds that sounds like a fundamental cultural issue then, like the way that we define work is part of the problem. Because if you look at the, the Obama administration's for all its faults, you look at its record on labor, the Obama administration did create jobs and did improve the economy. Now, the majority of those jobs were in service industries. The majority of those jobs were in urban areas. And that doesn't necessarily, um, that's not necessarily cohesive with our culture of work and masculinity and the way that we view late, what labor should be. But the fact that we are pushing against automation and pushing against the fact that we don't need to have people in manufacturing, like, and we we can support a, like a robust welfare state. Like, the push against those things is part of what caused the rise of Donald Trump, and it's also part of the of the support for Donald Trump. It's 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 the snake eating its own tail, right? It's. But I think that. Uh, the idea is certainly that we wanted to look to the past and that, that nostalgia has led to certain people like because they know the past, they'll do it or they'll vote for Donald Trump. But I don't think that accounts 
all for why Donald Trump would get elected because the first time in my life I've seen millennials identify, create the alt-right, and um, like establish a conservative, and it's going to stay there for the rest of our lives, a conservative movement within the millennial generation. Um, and I think that has to do with a cultural, the cultural issues. Uh, I think they see Donald Trump as the first cultural candidate, somebody that they can identify with them and put them in the same in-group as them, whereas... But the alt-right has been around for at least 15 years, though. Like, look, that movement, it's been, it's been a huge part of, like, Reddit and 4chan. Yeah, and but Richard Spencer, but Richard Spencer is, like, has a mostly millennial base. Yeah. And we haven't seen it, hasn't... But that's not into new. The mainstream that's until, okay. But it hasn't been into the mainstream until the this election. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the uh, the fact that this was a cultural candidate, I think, is important. That this was a part of the culture that we want to see in America. This is something I could identify with. Because on the left, uh, there's this sense of invisibility. Like, I don't need to identify with the technocracy, the elite, the experts in power, because the reason that they're there is because they do their job well. We should be run by experts. Uh, that's like what Barack Obama described as technocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly something that I agree with, but I think that invisibleness, the idea that you don't need to identify with your leaders, um, has led to this desire to identify with the leader. And Donald Trump, being a charismatic person, uh, was able to capitalize on that and be, you know, the father figure of the millennial generation. But identifying with a, an autocrat over a technocrat is the is probably the, the most ridiculously terrible decision that we, they that don't realize it's a technocrat. we can make. They're an autocrat. They view them as a member of their the family. definition of a technocrat. Well, what I think, I think is really interesting, and this kind of goes to the question of not so much why Donald Trump succeeded, but why he didn't fail. Um, think about the, the sort of logistical challenge of getting a billionaire born with billions um, living in the penthouse of a New York City skyscraper to get the lower class to identify with him and see them as one of their own. He's the blue, blue, blue collar billionaire. Yeah. And, and how does that happen? It's what his sons call him. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think one of the amazing things is you look at his campaign, there were countless moments. Every week that should have ended his campaign. Yeah. If any other if any other politician had they made the same I mean, we can all think of like three or four or at least politicians we can identify the moment that their campaign ended. Right. Because they made some ridic- some small error. Mm-hmm. Rick Perry's oops when he couldn't name the department of energy, for example. And now we went Yeah. Right. Forty seven percent. Yeah. Right. But because Donald Trump never pretended, never tried to be that presidential character, mm-hmm. never tried to be the typical politician who has to always say the right thing, I think he was, in a way, he had a certain special immunity to those actions. So when he talks about saying in, in the middle of Fifth Avenue and, shoot. and shooting people, um, he was actually right about that. But uh, like it's, I think that part of the problem is that in uh, like in American in America, in American society, we don't make a distinction between like uh, cultural class and economic class, like the difference between uh, most plumbers make more than most college professors, but most plumbers are a lower social class than the college professors are. And we need to make that distinction because although Donald Trump is a billionaire, and we were talking before about media appeal, Donald Trump has been on WWE, Donald Trump has been on like 
is part of a very specific um, social class. Yeah, board, like his support of like Donald Trump has been a part of Playboy movies. Like that's a that is has a very distinct social appeal. And while Hillary Clinton was on what Broad City, Parks and Rec, like those are distinctly different. <laughs> so those are the liberals in their ivory towers. That's what they watch. And Donald Trump has a very specific social appeal to those people. Regardless of the fact that he is a billionaire, they identify with him in the way that he speaks, in the way that he presents himself, his ill-fitted suits, his ties that reach out his belt. Like that, those are all things that are distinctly like working class, like a ruffled man, and that they see their fathers and their brothers in. I say this is my theory, it's called the Michael Vick theory. Um, Michael, we loved the Eagles, I love the Eagles. They needed a quarterback. We were close to becoming a Super Bowl champion. Our quarterback was done. Donovan was finished. We needed a quarterback. And the best quarterback out there, as far as honor, was Michael Vick, who was like a lot of us could agree was wanting in the character department. Had been torturing and killing animals and had come out of jail. But we wanted to win, damn it. So he became our quarterback. He became our quarterback. And a lot of us rooted for him because we cared about winning. His character and who he was and what he did meant nothing. All that mattered was winning. These people in the culture was are tired of losing. They lost the woman battle. They lost the gay battle. They lost the black battle. They lost the brown people battle. They've been losing battle after battle after battle. And now they got a quarterback. And they don't care if their quarterback grabs people's you-know-whats or pretends to uh, uh, mock handicapped people or is an, a rabbit anti-Semite and, and bigot. It doesn't matter. They, our quarterback killed dogs. Their quarterback did whatever he does. Why Mattis is winning. I would add to that. I would go a step beyond that and say it's not only that it doesn't matter, it's part of the persona. It's exactly. built in, again, sort of getting back <laughs> to the point where all these things that are supposed to be negatives, the reason why they weren't negatives is because that the critique of them is part of the persona. It's right. not only it. That, like, yeah, like, no, it's so, a negative like, for us, but it's a positive for a new support piece. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. so. Like, one thing, uh, to first thing, before anybody really goes crazy, remember Donald Trump didn't win. If he won because of the Electoral College, but he did get three million less votes than Hillary Clinton. So yeah. before anybody, before all these liberals and Democrats, doesn't matter. He's still president. I understand. <laughs> what I'm saying is they're they're all going crazy about saying, uh, you know, what do we have to do? More people voted for Hillary Clinton than Donald Trump. The second thing is. Um, the, Donald Trump is the ultimate anti-politician. And for years we've been hearing that professional politicians are horrible, which I've never understood, because as far as I know, President of the United States should not be an entry-level position. But that's what they're voting for. They're voting for somebody with absolutely no experience in government. Um, which, you know, well, that's a positive. That's a positive. But that's not to say that the, the, the Democrats shouldn't learn anything from this election. I'm not saying they shouldn't learn anything. What I am saying is, you know, don't go crazy. But they're 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 grooming Cory Booker to to be the next candidate, and that would just like clearly they're not taking anything like any of the flaws of the Hillary Clinton campaign and using that to to create a new superior strategy. Well, but, in all fairness, yes. I, I don't think we should do the same thing. And uh, and appoint you know get get a nominee who uh, 
don't know. A corporate Democrat. Yeah, who, who would be, I'm not sure who the equivalent would be exactly. There, there may be no equivalent. I mean, it kind of really is one of a kind. Um, but I don't think we should go all the way to that extreme either. This might be a good, a good point to pivot to how we should respond to this. Because okay? I think that we've, even, and even the ways that we've been talking about it in here, why it's good that we're looking at all these different causes, part of the problem is that some of the different that causes that we're talking about seem to be contradictory in terms of how you respond to them. So on one hand, we sort of talk about Trump as a perfect storm, and if Trump was sort of the perfect storm, we don't really need to do anything. This is sort of the argument that, well, it just so happened that there was this sort of bizarre confluence of events, and they all sort of ended up in this sort of fluke victory, and maybe the Democrats are fine, the Democrats are there, et cetera, et cetera. Someone was talking about the left needs a better story. So if that's the case, what is that? If we're talking about the failures of the left, what needs to be addressed? And if it is these broader cultural issues, how do we even begin with racism and xenophobia and misogyny? If, if that sort of being able to articulate that largely through the new the, the, the alt-right and then mobilizing it and connecting it to the Republican Party, how do we deal with something that massive? Right, so I'm very impressed with all of the uh, analysis of the dynamics that led to his election. Uh, I just watched a performance by Vince Priebus, uh, Bannon, and an apologist who's a moderator about all this. And uh, I'll spend a minute talking about Trump. Basically, he is a very weak person in terms of inner dynamics to begin with. And he's compensated for that all his life, one way or another largely through aggression. And that's the way he compensated from the time he was a child to now. He's not the intellectual uh, father of any set of political principles. As they try to present him today, we're following his agenda. Okay? Nonsense. He's never had an agenda other than expounding his own survival <laughs> mechanisms to accrue power of whatever sort. It doesn't matter. So it's not his principle. <coughs> the brain behind all of this is Bannon, okay, who actually is as close as you can get. He calls himself an economic nationalist. As close as you get to national socialism, which you know where that was coined in, in Nazi Germany. And it's not surprising that Bannon, who really feels that he has the intellectual power to actually influence, because he knows how to cater to the weaknesses of, that, that, that Trump actually has. And he'll flatter him as long as he can, including making his agenda, giving credit to, to, to Obama. Um, Bannon will not stop until the institutions that he sees as opposing him are destroyed. As long as the press and, you know, and institutions like the New York Times exist, he sees them as an enemy. Why? Because it interferes with his own whole notion which goes way back in time, about the institutions need to be reformed. How he survived at Goldman Sachs is beyond me, because I'm Jewish, it's a largely Jewish institution, and how they didn't find him out, or maybe that's why he left. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting question. So the question I have is, how do we as an institution, who's really under fire here, behave? And we have to do it in a way, as you pointed out, where we reach people on an emotional level. Because what, what Trump did was, in fact, reach the people's fears, give them senses of nostalgia for a world that can't be recreated, 
That never existed. And by the way, never <laughs> existed, okay? Uh, and we have to come up with a strategy as an academic institution to confront that without blaming anybody, without uh, uh, castigating anybody, even though he got his start, Trump, by catering to uh, racists and misogynists. Uh, he eventually embraced people who are not that, but who have substantial economic grievances, given the fact that they were not taken care of the way Germany did their working class, the way the Swedes did theirs, the way the French did theirs. The Democrats just let it all flow, okay? The Republicans are worse. So what do we, what do we believe in here? We believe in an institution that is inclusive, that does not draw lines and barriers between population groups or religions or races. We have to have this sense of inclusion as being a constant factor in whatever our conversations are. That's a positive. Eventually, everybody gets excluded in some way or some fashion. We have to fight that at every step of the way. And that's a positive. You can't be accused of blaming anybody or, or, or being somebody who wants to destroy institutions. You have to have constant efforts at inclusion and empathy towards the working class that was not taken care of the way the Germans and the Swedes and the French did, okay? Uh, and that has to be our agenda for the next four years. We have to have those kinds of events. We have to engage students in it. Uh, so inclusivity is one thing. The next thing is we have to destroy this notion that understanding and knowledge of complexity and complicatedness, which is why we're all here at this institution, that's why our academic institutions have value in and of themselves. Anybody who has the nerve to get up and say there are alternative facts <laughs> is somebody who should be disgraced as being totally out of the pale. It's not just a, a thing, it's a threat against us as being parts of academic institutions to allow such a thing to float. From whatever source it is, because it can come from the Stalinists and it can come from the Nazis equally. So what I implore all of you to do is to support whatever efforts we can here to constantly drive those two facts home. It's inclusive, with no walls, and expressions of empathy that people are under attack, and the notion that facts matter, and understanding the complexities of the world matter. And that's what our agenda should be in terms of the next four years, in terms of bringing that issue home. Uh, sort of taking it back from that systematic level of what institutions need to do, um, and more about the popular discourse we should probably have, I think there should have be a long-standing critique of nationalism and a long-standing critique of nationalism as an extension of why identity politics are problematic. Um, as you were saying, well, like it's like like and that's like in the past now, um, but really it's in the past for minorities, and it's not the most powerful long-standing identity politic is the way in which white people can come together and form their own political group that um, seeks and gets power just as a result of the identification being in an in-group, being in the family of President Trump. Um, the alt-right calls him like President Daddy and weird things. And it's, it's the idea that this persona is within our family. Um, and I think that 
uh, having a long-standing critique of, okay, yeah, identity politics are bullshit, but this one is more bullshit because it has very problematic uh, like associations and ties to power. Um, I don't think anybody on the right would look at Donald Trump and say that there's not a better candidate in their mind that could have done that job better. I think that's obvious to everybody, even on the right, that this this was the guy that could do it. This was the guy that could take down the career politician, and that's why we supported him. Um, but we just have to get people to realize that there are more important things than you know identifying with somebody in your family. But uh, I don't. I'm sorry, you're saying that we need to, to, to wage war against this specific form of identity politics? We should, war. yeah, we should extend the critique that came out of conservatives saying identity politics are bullshit now, like, it's just leveraging for no, for no good reason. We need to take it a step further and say that, yeah, no identity politics should exist if you're going to say that but the, identity politics are problematic. The, the trend of white people, for, the, for possibly the first time, voting... Um, voting more and more as a substantial voting block, as opposed it's to having identity like, politics. That, that, like, that's that's that, that new trend, though. That's uh, that's a response to identity politics in many ways. It's a response to the, the, the right. Democratic Party making an attempt to, to diversify and be the, the big tech party or whatever. Um, how do we have that conversation about the the faults of identity of identity politics? when the faults of identity politics are the reason why there is now essentially a white voting block for So the, what I see... Jump in briefly, because I mean something I would like to hear all, all of us, especially students, is can we also sort of talk about really specific responses? Because of, you're sort of talking about like the institutional level, you're talking about sort of the broader movement level, and in some ways sort of individual levels. What type of, so what, how do we do that? I mean, it, it, the, the question is, well, we need to push against identity politics where are we doing? Are we having symposiums like this? Are we going out online? Are we making a campaign? What sort of specific interventions do you think can be the sites for this type, these type of responses, both individually as, as, a, as a broader movement and also as an institution? Can I rephrase I, I your question? Hear you speak to that. Let me just rephrase your question a bit. I'm, I'm unsure because I've been searching it for myself. How do we reach the emotional level? of getting people to, to break down that identification, by the way, father figure with a child is a very powerful metaphor right. for, for, for interrelations, okay? Right. How do we elevate something to equivalent level that breaks down that particular sense of identification with something else which is more positive? I don't know the answer to that. I'd, I'd be curious to hear what anybody has to say about that. Well, that's something that I think it just starts small, just like say communicate with like friends and stuff, just acting like how they are or just seeing how's it going, just like taking that one step instead of like talking about something so mundane like the weather or something, and then say, oh, I know that class, and they like, what's that class like, you good? And stuff like that, just the little stuff that will like lead into the people, like mounting moves and all this stuff, like just small stuff. But we're not we're not interacting with those people. Like it, the, when we when we try to host those sorts of conversations, that's um, I I have Trump supporters who've married into my family. Uh, <laughs> I like I'm friends with and in circles with people who I know wouldn't admit it, but I know did vote for Trump. 
And when when the topic is broached, it's it's the reaction is always for, first of all fu fundamentally anti-intellectual, and then reclusive because nobody wants to discuss the fact that there there isn't a justification. Like there, it I I have never interacted with somebody on the subject of the support of, uh, of their support of Donald Trump and gotten concrete response, like concrete. A concrete defense of their choice that wasn't. I think the problem we have, we got to get away, and I, mm -hmm. I, I'm a victim of this as well. Right. Blaming, we got to get away away from why, because it happened. Okay, it happened, and I agree with you in the back there. It's small, but I'm going to give a weird point of view, but I really do believe this. The, they are going to help us. The people on the Trump side are going to help us, not because they're doing anything good. Um, <laughs> it's because it's going to be so bad. Um, it's going to be when Elizabeth, the little girl who walked into um, to um, uh, in Arkansas, a little girl with the white outfit, everyone is screaming the N word at her. She's a sweet little girl. People who were on the fence, people who didn't care, were moved. Um, we have a certain degree of deplorables in this country because nothing's going to move. Nothing. They're horrible and they're going to stay horrible. But there's those people in the middle who didn't care or just didn't like Hillary or whatever it may be. And when they see people dragged out of their homes, as they're seeing now, when they see families, and I hate to say, I, it's horrible, but in a sense there's a part of me saying, let it happen. Let them see just how awful it is. And there will be the substantial amount of among us who will say, I can't live with that. That's just not America. When they drag children away from their parents, which they're doing now, when they take somebody out of the hospital who's about to have an operation for a brain tumor, and effectively going to kill this person because they're not going to have the operation, and that person will die, then that's going to motivate. We're already motivated. We're here. We just, it will motivate the people in the middle to be disgusted and say, uh, that's not me. That's not America, and I think that is going to fuel. They, it's going to get worse, and I want it to. I really do, because it's going to get it. Might as well get bad now, quickly, so that it, we can stem the stop the tide as, as quickly as possible. You have far greater faith in the American people than I do. If oh, you, you at, and you know me, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you look at, at Kentucky, right? Kentucky that has the, the highest rate of like um, people. Who voted against, voted for Trump, and were on the Affordable Care Act? Those people still haven't come, like, have accepted the fact that, in with their vote, they voted against their thirty own days. It's thirty days, and when they start dying, and their relatives start dying, and people they know and children start dying, then they say, "Huh, what happened?" I'm just, I'm very uncomfortable with the language of inevitability. That's I, I, because, because I, I, and I think, and both in terms of people will see this and they'll get it. I also think in some ways, one of your, your opening remarks, like, well, once a millennium, once, once you all grow up and start yeah. running things, like the, the, the hippies in the 60s we said the exact same thing, same thing, thing. and where they are now. It was so, like, the hippies <laughs> when the hippies were running things, right? <laughs> so, so I, I think we need to, I, again, I think, I, I think that, I, I agree with you that those things are going to happen. I agree they're going to be terrible. I agree that there are going to be broader demographic changes, but that doesn't let us off the hook. We still need to be able to frame these things. We need to be able to talk about them in a way that is convincing, or that motivates people, or that gets people to just care about them. It's very easy to not care about things. And I think that 
guess that, that, that would be the only part I would push out there is that we just can't assume it's gonna happen. I think that we, I think we can assume terrible things are gonna happen, but we can't just assume that because of those things, people are going to be motivated for a particular, in a particular direction, for a particular person. That's, that's work we need to do. I'm sorry, there, there's only one thing which I have complete faith in, and that is reality. No, what I mean by that is, I think, yes, Trump is out there. Um, the people in this immediate circle are, are doing what they're going to do. I think we need to react to it, but I don't think that should be our main focus, because I think at the end of the day, reality will destroy Trump. Yeah. When he tries to build a wall across the entire border, that doesn't make any sense. Reality will destroy those ideas. I mean, like physically, it's geographically, it's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But wait, what happens when he doesn't build a wall, but he says he does, and his fan base believes him? Well, that's offense. Well, that, uh, well, reality might not be Certain people are, are never going to believe reality. They're always going to believe in something. They're always going to believe in alternative facts. Mm -hmm. And as long as those alternative mm -hmm. facts have power over reality, we're always going to be in trouble. But what I think, where I think we need to focus our efforts is on the people that we can actually reach. And the president is somewhere far out there. He's like a distant star as far as we're concerned. But there are people that are not Congress members, for example. They are people who we can talk to who they have very real fears about not getting elected, about their political ambitions being crushed by not listening to their constituents. These are people that we can talk to and we can reach and we can make a real impact through them. I think that's how we should respond in a very real way. I think if you listen to, I think Trump yes, just yesterday was saying, accusing um, liberals of paying people to go to town hall meetings to Congress. I haven't gotten anything. Yeah. I know. Sorry. We're still waiting for that. Sorry. It must be the mail. Why? Because they're afraid of that. Because that's exactly how we make a difference. I really substantially agree. This is, this is the, the origins of the new right, right? The, the new right began sort of after the just sort of evisceration of Goldwater, not at the presidential level, not at the national level. They started in school boards. Yeah. They started in local government. They, 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 they built, they literally built the base from the ground up. I, again, sort of talking about the need for us to be clear-eyed and honest about the failures of the left. That is, I think, one of the deepest ones. And a lesson that we need to learn from the right is we can't, it's, it's not simply about, because again, why, why we talk about Trump as a celebrity candidate, I totally agree, I forget who said it now, I'm sorry, but that, you know, Hillary as a type of celebrity candidate and a, 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 a long-standing democratic fixation on the sort of charismatic national leader and a sort of a less emphasis on who's filling up the school boards, who's in, who's in city council, who's in the town, who's the, who, or the alderman. I think that that sort of connection, that, that sort of work, and then again, connecting those to <laughs> To the state senate level, to the, the, the U.S. senate, to the presidency, yeah. that work of articulation and connection, I think, is something that, again, the left has been quite bad at. And, something that, and also connecting to the, the broader social movements, to Black Lives Matter, to the Women's March. How do we sort of forge connections not only within the Democratic Party, but how beyond, beyond, beyond that as well? Because I think there's a largely insular focus there, too. Let's so really use those checks and balances that we have in our government because they're not, we're not using them. They're there, but we don't use them. Well, unfortunately, the only check and balance we have left right now because is the courts because we are Republicans running everything. Um, and but I think part of our the promising sort of evidence that we're going to be we're going to be in trouble for a couple of years.
of years at least. And I don't think Donald Trump is going to last very long simply because he's only been in office a month. And look at all the stuff that's happened. Uh, that, you know, eventually he's got, what, 35% approval rating, something like that, which, you know, the fact that a third of the country still thinks he's doing a good job is just crazy. But still, it's only 35%. He's doing, he's doing worse than George W. Bush was doing right after Katrina. Uh, and the fact that so many people don't like him right now, I think is a promising thing because in 2018, hopefully, the Democrats will be smart enough to say, you guys supported Trump. And don't, put, don't pick us as a party. So by 2020, when the census comes out, we have more control on the local level. And hopefully the Democrats are smart enough to realize that. So that way we can, you know, Jerry Daniel redistrict, however you want to call it, where we can actually have the Democrats even things up. I don't want the Democrats in power anymore than I want the Republicans in power, but I want it even. And right now it's not even. And that's the problem. And I, like I said, you know, Donald Trump himself is going to implode. The, the Republicans are going to get sick of him. As soon as uh, Ryan and McConnell actually grow a pair and... That's the threshold for being, you know, getting, being sick of it. I mean, there's already been a month of it. Two years before. When they start think, thinking that they're going to lose Congress. <laughs> And they're only two seats away in the Senate. So sooner or later, he's going to have to realize it. He's two seats away, and two of them are already against him. Yeah. So he's already 50-50. And they, they, it's only a month into the term. I don't think it's going to last much longer. He doesn't have, Trump himself doesn't have a lot of support. And his goal seems to be put everybody in the cabinet that has that. You know, they're, they're the, the qualifications to be in the cabinet is to have no qualifications. That's right. <laughs> Except being a billionaire. <laughs> Except for that, yes. And they're going to get sick of that because, you know, eventually the voters are going to identify Trump Republican, they're Republican. You know, and yes, there is always going to be the idiots. There's always going to be the 30% are just going to vote Republican or vote, you know, the old right. I think that term. Uh, but there are always going to be the idiots that just ignore reality. But there's... I'm at least hoping that there's still two-thirds of the country that does actually look at reality and say, there's something wrong here. Well, I think we're going to have to end it on that. We're, we're already over time, but this was a really great discussion. Obviously, it's, it's going to literally be ongoing uh, with, with uh, the other Trump talks, so I encourage you uh, to attend those. And I also really encourage you uh, to sort of think about what we're talking about today and think about specific things we can be doing. I think that thinking about it, I, re I really like stuff talking about big issues at the general level, but something we really need to be thinking about are what are things that we can be doing now and not just sort of hoping that the applause will come and then everything else will sort of stuff out. Because I, I because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank, thank you, everybody, you. for your time.